Hey, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you today. I've got a guest on today that will take up most of the program. I've just got a few minutes of intro before I welcome on Mike Aquilina, an author of more than 50 books. Amazing. And he's going to be in Spokane. He's going to be at uh, the uh, at uh, on the campus of Gonzaga University tomorrow evening, Thursday night, for a lecture on um, on medicine and medical care in the early church. And what does that have to do and what does that have to say to us today? Well, the answer is quite a bit, and you're going to really enjoy the interview I was able to record with him yesterday. Tomorrow in the evening as well, if you're on the west side, if you're uh, in the Puget Sound area, you may not be able to have the opportunity to come all the way to Spokane. However, there's another chance to be with Alan Ames, and he is coming, he came all the way from Australia, yes, indeed, from Australia, to to tell his testimony and to preach a, a vibrant message of faith to the folks in the Puget Sound area. So I want to encourage you to go out to Mary Queen of Peace Catholic Church in Sammamish. Mary Queen of Peace, you remember Father Chad Green was on um, about, I think, two weeks ago, talking about St. Charbel and his relics, along with a generational healing mass. Well, they're not done. Uh, Father Green has invited Alan Ames, this time not just to come from Portland up to <laughs> up to uh, Mary Queen of Peace. Well, the deacon or the priest from Portland was representing a, a saint from Lebanon. So that's, yeah, that's halfway around the world. Well, if you go around the world the other way, you'll end up in Australia. And so he's bringing now in this Catholic lay evangelist from Australia um, as part of another healing mass. This healing mass will be tomorrow evening, and it begins at 7 o'clock. And then after the mass, or maybe incorporated in, in the context of the mass, there's going to be a, a talk, a testimony, given by Alan. And if you want to learn more about him and his background, including motorcycle gangs and lots of other trouble, tune in tomorrow. Tomorrow on the program, I have the, the wonderful blessing of interviewing Alan Ames, um, and that will be in anticipation of his visit to Mary Queen of Peace. And then after his talk, he will pray with people. That's one of the, the gifts, one of the charisms, the giftings of the Holy Spirit that the Lord has blessed him with is praying with people, praying with people for, for healing which, wow, what a, what a beautiful gift. What a wonderful thing. And you know, I, I love this because there's a way in which these two guests come together. These two happenings on Thursday the 10th of November fit together. On the one hand, you have, um, you have Mike Aquilina talking about healing through the rise of the hospital systems and uh, the practice of medicine from the standpoint of faith um, he'll be giving that lecture on one side of the state. And on the other side of the state, you have someone who's continuing to advance and, and display the work of Christ, the healer, through direct ministering in prayer and in the context of the sacrament of, um, of the sacred liturgy, the sacrament of the Eucharist, and, and praying in that context. So very exciting stuff happening in these days, and certainly at a time when it's cold and dark and getting colder and darker, it's, it's time to let the light of Christ come and minister to our lives. Let me pray, and then we'll get to the interview. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord our God, I thank you and praise you for the gift of today, for the ways that you do love us and take care of us, the way that you bless us, Lord, especially with healing. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give us the, the insight and the wisdom to know that you are a God who does heal, a God who moves with great power, a God who knows our every need. Lord, help us never to be lacking in confidence that you are a God who takes care of us. I thank you for that, Lord. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last word. If you are up early, 6 a.m. early. Please go to I Love My Catholic Faith on Facebook. Go to Facebook, I Love My Catholic Faith. I am praying a rosary live, but not just saying the words of the rosary, but interspersing praying with people like you and people around the world 
for their needs. Enough of that. Let's dive into the interview with Mike Aquilina. Well, let me welcome to the program Mike Aquilina, who is joining me today and is going to be here in eastern Washington at Gonzaga University for an event in just a couple of days. Very excited to have you coming out this way, Mike. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Mike, I, you know, I, uh, uh, looking up your background is incredibly impressive. Over 50 books written. How in the world do you do that? For, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. Okay. I'm overwhelmed when I hear the, I, I looking at the video, you've got, um, those are all of the 50 books you've written behind you on your bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually they're in front of me. They're behind my, my camera. So you can't see them, but they're, they're, they're in the office somewhere. Um, but yeah, I, 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 you're highly motivated when you have small children and you have to feed them somehow. And uh, and that's how I fed my children is by writing books. Um, also, really? I'm kind of a bookish person. Yeah, I'm, I'm just a bookish person. I, I'm, I'm a, an extreme introvert. I find joy in looking into a computer and typing. And, uh, and, and I love to read. I love to read and I have a special interest in uh, Christian antiquity. So most of my books have been in that area. Um, I read I read the scholarly literature, right? Because I'm nerdy that way. But I recognize that you know most of us aren't um, aren't equipped to slog through all of those footnotes and everything and track down the sources. So what I try to do in my work is to mediate the work of great scholars who are who are writing today, but writing things that are so lofty that people can't reach them. And uh, and I try to, to take all this great research that's happening and bring it out to a, a, a public that's waiting for it. That's beautiful. I love that way of talking about the, like the stewardship. Like God has given you a gift and some temperament, a temperament <laughs> personality, and and he was able to like mold that and shape that um, for his glory, right? For the good of the church today. And, and what a, it's a special gift because uh, you're right. People today are so busy. They don't have the time. They don't make the time. Or even if they did, what would they do with their time in terms of yeah, where to yeah. begin yeah. when it comes to accessing the riches of the early church? Yeah. And academic books are are difficult. You know, they're difficult by nature. Uh, they're written. They tend to be written for other academics, and uh, and 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 yet there's there's such gold in them, Hills. You know, and you want to get that gold out of it and uh, and out to the people who again are interested in this. People are interested in the early church. They're interested in Christian antiquity, and um, and they they want to know more about it. So when did you feel this sense of saying, this is my call, this is, God has made me drawn to this, and in fact, I can accomplish a mission and provide for my family through writing. That's it. That's a pretty rare air to be mm. able to make a living and fulfill a mission when it comes to something very specific like writing. I think it happened very gradually, uh, and um, and it wasn't by realizations; it was by opportunities. Uh, I I um I had been working in publishing for some time. I'd made a lot of connections, and um and I got an offer to edit a magazine. I could do it from home uh, because of the advances in technology, and uh, and it would uh, it wouldn't be a full-time job. It wouldn't require that kind of time and attention from me, uh, but it would be enough money to to float me for a bit, and uh, it would give me the time and um, and the freedom I would need to uh, to do other things like write books. So uh, so that was kind of my breakthrough moment when when I had this convergence of opportunities. I did take the job, and I I ended up editing um, a New Covenant magazine for uh, for a, a good five years, and. Um, and I um I wrote books along along with that job, so that was that was fun. Okay, so Mike, when it um, sometimes people will say to me, if you have your ideal birthday and you can do whatever you want on your birthday, what do you do? And and I say I would be sitting by myself reading the Summa Theologica, just enjoying, just going through Aquinas like that. And people think I'm weird. Because uh, I've got a bunch of kids, and I tend to do things that make me visible in front of people. But I, I tend to be a little bit more introverted than people realize. Mm -hmm. So my ideal day is just sitting quietly and enjoying a, a great work like the Summa. Okay, so what's your ideal birthday? Does it involve, I mean, since you write 
books and you love to read it. What's your ideal birthday? Today is my birthday, actually. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I oh, turned that 59 is... today. And oh. so uh, so I'm doing I'm doing my ideal birthday right now. Uh, it's 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 whatever comes and I'm enjoying it. Wow. OK, you're a lot holier than I am. <laughs> so what's funny is my birthday was two days ago. So there you go. And uh, and I didn't get to sit and read the Summa on my birthday, but that's OK. <laughs> that's OK. All right. So we are here to talk about the healing imperative. And uh, again, this is uh, one of the input. This is the impetus for you coming out to uh, the event sponsored by the Faith and Reason Institute here at uh, at Gonzaga University, and I'm excited to have you come out in this area in, in just in two days. It's on the 10th of November at seven o'clock in the evening, um, right there at uh, on the campus of Gonzaga University. Um, what, uh, among all of these books, what was it that made the Faith and Reason Institute say, Mike, will you come out and talk about this book right now? Hmm. Well, that's a good question because I never, I didn't ask them that, uh, so I can only guess. And uh, my guess would be that um, medical care right now uh, is in something of a crisis. Uh, it's uh, it's become something other than what it was before. Uh, my sister worked as an emergency room nurse for many years, and she found herself in a very different place beginning about fifteen years ago, and. Uh, and so she um, uh, she suddenly found herself in a place where everything was being measured for efficiency as if it was a factory. And she said, in an emergency room, life just isn't that way. You're always in the middle of someone's crisis. And so they started putting limits on how much the nurses, how much time the nurses could spend talking to patients. Uh, and she said, you can't do that in an emergency room. You have you have failed suicides coming in, you know, and uh, or you have unfortunately successful suicides coming in. And you um you need to talk to the parents. You need to talk to to um to to the to the victims who are there. And um and you can't just say, oh, that's a minute. Your time is up. You can't just do that. So she ended up retiring. My sister retired because she told me she didn't feel like she was giving medical care anymore there was no care in it so she retired and she works at a free clinic now she volunteers at a free clinic and she feels fulfilled well i have a feeling that um that a lot of people feel this way you know uh, that um that a lot of people got into the medical profession for vocational reasons and they felt ill at ease with a lot of the developments even if they can't really put their finger on why this makes them feel bad you know uh but I, I think that, that the problem's much deeper and the crisis is much deeper. It's because the profession itself is no longer doing what it was invented to do. The hospital, medical care as we know it, was invented by the Christian church in order to glorify God, in order to heal people in the name of Jesus Christ. And it was supposed to be a Christ-like act, act of service to work in this profession. That's why doctors got into it in the in the ancient uh, times, and uh, and we're not working that way anymore. And suddenly, we're trying to figure out why do we have hospitals? And the bottom line comes down to profit, right? And uh, and that's not that's not a suitable substitute. We're finding that we cannot sustain the hospital as it was invented under the circumstances we now have. Well, and it's so interesting. Uh, your book, The Healing Imperative, brings up a number of like incredibly relevant conversation points for right now. Having come through COVID the way we have, facing uh, things like uh, surgeries being offered to teenagers without their parents' consent when it comes to gender issues, uh, and then the idea of different modes of practicing medicine, just literally yesterday, I was talking with a physician, and um, it was her goal to be able to be able to incorporate prayer into her practice, mm -hmm. where right there in the room, talking with someone about their medical situation and using all, you know, contemporary medical science to be able to directly say, let's also pray about this and let's incorporate prayer for healing into medical acts of healing. 
and saying, I can't find a model out there. I can't yeah. find a, a way of bringing those two together in America. And, and, mm-hmm. is, and, and, and we, the conversation was like, where do I find a model like that in all of these things? And I'm thinking, wow, and I'm going to be talking to Mike about the healing imperative. Uh, fascinating. Um, one of the key one of the key points that you bring up in the book is the linking of the coming of Christ and the ministry that flowed from Christ, the divine yeah. physician, and the way how in the early church this also meant the arrival of and the growth of the the reality of hospitals today. Yeah. Um, why don't you take us a bit onto that journey uh, about how coming from Christ into the early church, there was this uh, arising of an awareness about the need to care for the the, the sick. Well, when Jesus was asked to uh, verify his own mission, he presented physical cures as evidence. What did he say? He said, the, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf heal. Here. Uh, the, and the dead are raised <laughs> and the poor have the good news preached to them. You know, he, those were his bona fides. You know, that's that's what he brought out as evidence of his divine mission. Uh, and then when when he he commissioned the seventy to go out on their first mission, he instructed them, "Heal the sick, heal the sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you." So our Lord Himself is first modeling this ministry and then commissioning others to do it. And the early Christians took that seriously. One of the very interesting things I learned as I was doing the research for this book is that uh, we can identify more Christians in the medical profession in the ancient world than in any other profession. I mean, there are people who do this. They try to track track down uh, the identities of people who are mentioned in literary sources, figure out as much about them as they can. There's a whole, it's a whole subspecialty in history. And, and they do this research, and out of all of those early Christians that we know about, you'd think that there would be be more people working with their hands, more more carpenters, you know, more plumbers, um, more um, more people doing the trades. But no, the, the 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 trade that is most represented, most well represented in the early church is um is the medical profession. It's doctors, it's it's uh, nurses, it's people who are caring for um people who are caring for others that that way. Um, and that says something, you know, that says that there are so many people in the ancient world or so many people in the ancient church who wanted to imitate Jesus in his healing ministry. Or it tells us that um, that the pagan physicians saw something attractive in Christianity and it brought them into the fold, you know, that they wanted to come into the church because the church was a place where healers could do their job and serve others and and it would be satisfying you know mike i uh hearing all of that it's um i i wonder how much of a surprise it is today for us to think about the fact that we do see catholic hospital systems right there are certainly those that are out there but there's often a um a bit of a not just distinction but a bit of a separation between Mm -hmm. the idea that well medicine is science and science is is removed from faith and so we got to just stick to the medical identifiable facts that is reason alone abstracted from faith and yet to hear you unfold very beautifully what is obvious but sometimes we have eyes but don't see it yeah is the intimate link between faith in christ and christ's as the son of god's own ministry in this world manifested in the care for those who are sick What's interesting to me is that uh, is that people say those things and they act as if the church is waging a war on science or a war on women. And you hear all these crazy things, uh, which 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 just really uh, represent anti-Catholic big bigotry, because until the church came along, there was no such thing as a hospital. I want to read you a line from the historian Gary Ferngren, okay, who wrote one of the histories of the hospital, right? It's put out by Johns Hopkins University Press, so very prestigious book from a prestigious university press. Here's what he says. He says, the hospital was, in origin and conception, a distinctively Christian institution, rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. 
there were no pre-Christian institutions in the ancient world that served the purpose that Christian hospitals were created to serve. None of the provisions for healthcare in classical times resembled hospitals as they developed in the late fourth century. So the hospital itself would not exist if not for this Christian initiative to invent the hospital. And it was only with the Christian hospital that the medical profession stabilized enough so that you could have research, all right? You had all of these doctors working together in one place instead of working in competition with one another because there were medics as long as there were people on earth, right? Um, but, but this was the first time they were brought together for the common purpose of healing others as an act of service. And so they could work together. They could take notes. They could compare notes. They could see what was working and what was not working. You know, this was a great advance in the conditions that are necessary for medical science. And we would not have it apart from Christianity. I love that. that. That was an amazing quote. It's found in uh, Mike's book, The Healing Imperative. And I want to encourage you to go to his website, fathersofthechurch.com, fathersofthechurch.com. There's that handsome picture of Mike right there uh, and more than 50 books. And again, when you scroll down and see some of his books, here's The Healing Imperative, and it gives you the ability to get the book right now. Uh, Fathers of the Church, you can order it right there uh, on his website. And again, we're talking with him because of an upcoming event that's happening on November the 10th at uh, Gonzaga University on the early church and the invention of medicine as we know it. Uh, and that's at seven o'clock until 8.30 in the evening. And so folks, if you're listening to this on the radio again, that's coming up, it's Thursday night, this Thursday, November the 10th, seven to 8.30 in the evening. And so I do encourage you to come out to the event uh, it's sponsored by the Faith and Reason Institute right there at Gonzaga, uh, on the campus of Gonzaga University. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com. drtomcurran.com. Um, so, Mike, um, going to fathersofthechurch.com, we get to see so many of the books that you've written, and they're amazing. Um, I want to focus a little bit more on the healing imperative, but then I'm going to I'm going to pepper you a little bit. I think you're going to be able to handle it uh, if we go into a couple of your other books. Um, one of the things that I found striking about your book was the uh, Christian way of advancing the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. And I didn't realize the limitations of do no harm, because I think I've uh, took taken for granted the let's call it the Christian elevation and purification of that idea, mm -hmm. especially when it came to uh, the maturing of the hospital system in the late fourth mm -hmm. century, um, when it came for caring for folks like the lepers. So for folks who are not familiar with either maybe the Hippocratic Oath or its limitations or its advances in uh, Christianity, I'd love for you to, to dive into that a little bit. Well, Christianity took medicine far beyond the Hi Hippocratic Oath, especially in terms of um, its uh, its its uh, its ethical constraints, um, because you know the Hippocratic Oath says you know first do no harm, right? Okay, and, and that's a fairly low bar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's a fairly low bar. I, I'm glad it's there, right? And you want your doctor not to be taking out healthy organs, right? You want your doctor not to be doing things to you just because he can make a profit at it, right? Or just because, you know, somebody will pay him to do it, even though he knows it's unnecessary. You don't want those things to happen. And those things are harm. Uh, so it, it is a good, good beginning, but, but, you know, it's a modest beginning for a medical ethic. But Christianity demanded more. And it was there right at the beginning of the invention of the hospital. Okay, so where do we first begin to see these uh, these um, uh, 
efforts. All, you know, they're not quite institutions yet, but they're efforts, right, to bring uh, medical doctors together in a crisis situation and uh, and offer a service that is badly needed at the moment. Well, the first time we see evidence of it on a large scale is in Carthage in the middle of the third century. So around the year 250. Right. And and there's the, the, the city is suffering plague at the time. Many people are dying, but at the same time, Christians are suffering their worst persecution to date. All right, the Dacian persecution, right, where they were they were they were forced to to make sacrifice to the pagan gods or be killed, and they had to carry around a little certificate on 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 their their person to prove show it on demand to the authorities and prove that they had they had made sacrifice to the gods right so all of this is happening at the same time and you have all of these doctors who are christians at, so they're really putting themselves at risk by going out in public and and serving the people who are sick and who are dying and the bishop of carthage at the time was the great cyprian one of the great fathers of the church right and he told his congregation look you cannot make distinctions among the people you serve in the time of epidemic, the people you feed because they've been abandoned by their family, the people you heal because you that's your profession. You cannot make distinctions. You've got to offer your services, not only to your Christian brothers and sisters, but to the pagans as well, to your persecutors. So these doctors, these Christian doctors, had to face the situation where they, they they must offer medical care to the people who had killed their parents, who had killed their children, maybe, who had killed their, their siblings, who had killed their friends and neighbors and co-religionists and, uh, and cooperated in this. Or, you know, the ordinary pagans who just were the, the crowd that cheered on all of these, these executions of Christians. It must have been something to see, and it must have made it must have made a deep impression on on the people and and i can only imagine that once the epidemic passed you know once the disease finally had had left many of those people who received service from the christians and who had witnessed the christians serving their persecutors i'll bet i'll bet so many of those people wanted to become christian the the sociologist rodney stark tells us that the church at this time at that time grew at the steady at a steady rate of 40% per decade worldwide 40% per decade now think about that the numbers in the church are growing at a time of epidemic simultaneous epidemic and persecution that seems crazy but the church was growing so rapidly and i think it was because of the witness of medical personnel you know, that uh, again, I'm talking with my, uh, Mike Aquilina. He's the author of more than 50 books. He's coming out to speak at Gonzaga University at the Faith and Reason Institute this Thursday, 7 to 8.30 in the evening. But uh, Mike, you've got a very nice speaking style, I got to admit. You're very <laughs> easy you. to listen to. Uh, and honestly, I do a lot I'm of- I'm going to tell my kids you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you use that same voice with any teenagers you still have left around your house, right? Yeah. Uh, no, Mike, uh, your books, I really enjoy your style of writing. It is, you use, um, uh, you pepper it with stories, with uh, other anecdotes, and yet it's filled with insights. And so, folks, if you're not familiar with uh, Mike and his, and his many books, I do encourage you to go to fathersofthechurch.com. And there are many books there that, that you can um, take a look at. The Healing Imperative is the one that we're discussing now. Um, I So I have to tell you, so I, I've got a PhD in systematic theology. I've done a lot of study through my years and all of that. But I learned about Basil the Great, some fascinating aspects of his life that I had never known before. It was, yep. I think, I think that was my favorite chapter, but it, I, and I bring it up at this point because of where you just ended up. You talked about the way in which the society around which the church was operating um, applauded and were, were drawn to the way that the faith lived is in fact magnetic. 
And so uh, Basil is a great story. Um, do you want to uh, unfold some of, of what you say in the healing imperative about uh, that beautiful chapter about Basil the Great and his influence on hospital systems in, in, the, in the fourth century? Well, he wanted, to he wanted to renew the city where he was living. He was living in, um, in Cappadocian Caesarea, right, an uh, area that's now Turkey. Um, and, uh, and he wanted to renew the religious life, but also the social life of the city. So he really did uh, uh, a lot to uh, uh, impose a certain order on the, the lives of the monastics, both men and women. Uh, he wanted them to pray in a disciplined way. But he also wanted them to work and serve others. And one of the ways he had them serve was uh, was through institutions that he built. And the institutions were so vast that they became known as the new city, right? The new city. And sometimes um, uh, they, they it, it was called also uh, uh, the Basileia, so the, the kingdom, right? The, the kingdom, as if the kingdom had come and it was evident in, um, in a... Uh, in, in, in what was going on in the new city. Uh, well, what was there? There was a hospital there. There was an almshouse. There was a soup kitchen. There was a trade school, a trade school so that people would not have to beg on the streets. I'm going to teach you how to make a living. You know, uh, there were so many things going on in the new city, uh, but the hospital became uh, really, really something he, he was famous for and famous not only locally, but throughout the world already during his lifetime. He was known as Basil the Great. <laughs> I mean, that's what we call him now, but they were already calling him that during his lifetime. And when he well, died, after building this city of charity, the city of hospitality, uh, he was not yet 49 years old. You know, he, 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 he did this all at such an early age. And um, and his, his best friend, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, gave a very long eulogy of him. It must have taken him the better part of a day to deliver it. Uh, but he referred to the new city, this hospital, and all these other supporting institutions as one of the one of the the wonders of the world. So he's putting it right up there with the pyramids and the hanging gardens of Babylon, you know, and the the lighthouse at Alexandria. This was one of the the seven wonders of the world in Gregory's estimation. Well, and, and you mentioned there were a couple of details I want to bring out uh, about uh, the hospital system that he grew. And that was, the first was um, how expensive it was to receive medical care and how the government provided all the funds for it. Was that right? Was that the way it yes. happened? Yes. After the conversion of the empire. You know, it's an important distinction because that was not the case in ancient Rome. There were no hospitals, as as uh, Gary Ferngren pointed out, right? There were no institutions that did what hospitals do. Mm -hmm. You know what they had? They had valetudinaria. And you know what they were? They were repair shops for slaves and soldiers. Because slaves and soldiers had a certain importance. Both mm -hmm. of them were investments, either for the state or for wealthy people. They wanted to keep them working, keep them healthy. Uh, I, I mean, if, if you see a soldier getting sick, if you see a slave getting sick, that represents, you know, a decline in the value of your investment. And so they did have repair shops for slaves and soldiers, but they didn't have hospitals for ordinary people. If you wanted to get medical care, you had to get it privately. And and as you, you probably know today, for anything that you have to get done you know, privately, it's going to be very expensive. Well, and Mike, one of the things that you brought out was the way that um, St. Basil himself um, took his inheritance and invested it yeah. to build this hospital system and, and, the, and the associated groups. And he inspired many um, wealthy uh, nobility that were yeah. Christian and otherwise to also give as part of their duty, their Christian duty yeah. was to serve the poor. And this is a way for them to do it so that the poor could receive medical care free of charge, which was so striking to me. Yeah. Yeah. And that became a hallmark of civilization, right? A hallmark of, 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 um, of, of what the, the Christian empire was, was trying to build everywhere it went, you know, uh, all around the world. And so, you know, you had cities that had as many as 12 hospitals then. 
and monasteries that were entirely turned over uh, uh, to the um, the practice that we would know today as um, uh, ambulance uh, service, right? Yeah. Because you had to get people, sick people, across a busy city, a thronged city, city, right? You had to get them through the streets, through the crowds, uh, in a wheelbarrow, essentially, right? So they had these rogue monks who were boorish and I even violent. And you needed that because you don't have um, the siren going off and people parting before you. So you have to use your elbows. There's a guy with using his elbows in front of the in front of the the cart as they go through the streets so you can get this person to the hospital to receive care. Yeah, you know, in Jesus' uh, holy name, get out of my way. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I love it. I love it. You know, there's yeah. a place for for each and every one of us in this uh, in this great act of service. So, Micah, you're coming out and you're going to be speaking. You're going to be drawing from the rich tradition uh, in our Catholic and Christian heritage that is the development of medical care and hospital systems um, for. For, for people, for, for yeah. the society in which they were planted. One of the areas that has, is becoming more controversial is around this idea of surgeries and hormones being given to prepubescence and, and to, uh, to early tween and teens um, in order to medically transition them to a different gender. And uh, this is being done uh, almost, uh, almost without uh, the 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 care and involvement of parents in instances, and in it's becoming alarming. It's becoming an alarming thing um, here in the state of Washington. My guess is you're going to be asked about that. How would the church view an issue like that, where medical interventions are being done to to early teens and 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 to teenagers who are experiencing gender dysphoria? Um, is there any light that you can cast on that, drawing from the, the early church or your own writings? Well, I mean, we come back to e e even Hippocrates said, first do no harm, right? And Hippocrates would not have uh, consented to the removal of an organ that's functioning. You know, he'd look at an organ and say, what is the end of this organ? What is its purpose? Why is it in the body? Is it doing what it is created to do? Um, I think that, that what's happening is... Um, it is it's not a gradual diminishment it's a it's a sudden evacuation of any sense of givenness that god has given us you know the 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 nature that we have the body that we have the soul that we have um in all of in all of its goodness um in all of its with all of its limitations uh you know i always wanted to be the shortstop for the Philadelphia Phillies when I was growing up. And, and, and I was the worst baseball player on the planet. You know, I was the kid who got chosen last every time the captains were, were building their teams. Right. So, so, I mean, I, I was just terrible, you know, but this was my heart's desire. We have to learn to work with our limitations and, 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 and grow to love who we are. Adolescence is a very difficult time for everyone every one of us who go through it and i would never want to go through that again right um so we i mean we have to respect that time with its difficulty and help others through it now parents can't help their children if they don't know what their children are going through if if that's kept secret from them you know they they can't help them i, I think that that um that the uh um the, the disrespect that's shown to parents and their place in um in a child's life is is horrific you know it used to be maybe it still is that that a school could not dispense an aspirin to a child without parental per permission to do so um and now you know they're uh they're 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 working without the parents knowledge or consent uh to um to to refashion the child's identity according to the the whims or the wishes of an adolescent we don't let these kids drive because we know that they don't have the 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 the, the frontal lobes formed enough to make the judgments necessary for driving we don't let them drink because we know that they don't have the capacity to make 
those judgments about about when to drink, when to stop drinking, and so on. And yet we want them to refashion their future, make these decisions that are irrevocable in their consequences. You know, this is this is insane to me. This is insane to me. It should be illegal. I have no idea why this is happening. Yeah, it's a it's a striking thing, Mike, and and I appreciate your answer. It was it was a beautiful answer. It was it was a profound answer. And um, if we trace it back to uh, a a source, it is God created us like this. Well, if you remove God, then you remove human nature. Yes, and then all of a sudden. I become my own creator, creator of my own future, and so I can do what I want with my body. You know that that whole train of thinking just leaves the station, mm-hmm. and yeah. these kids are just are at the whim of whoever can influence them in that moment, yeah. to horrific effect, to yeah. completely dangerous effect. So, uh, Mike, uh, this seems to, and again, I'm talking with Mike Aquilina, who's going to be in Spokane, Washington. Tomorrow night on Thursday the 10th, he will be speaking at the Faith and Reason Institute on the grounds of Gonzaga University. And I want to encourage you to come on out and see Mike. Um, He's going to be there at the Wolf Auditorium in the Jepson Center. Again, it's 7 to 8.30 in the evening. It's being sponsored by the Faith and Reason Institute there on site at Gonzaga University. Uh, Mike, your last answer uh, reminds me of your new book, Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians. It feels like we're moving into a time that's post-Christendom, right? You have lots of folks today talking about moving beyond the age of Christendom where uh, believers have a seat at the table and are influencing things, but now are increasingly identified as bigots and villains, Mm-hmm. And um, it seems as if your book here is uh, in- incredibly prescient in terms of identifying the fact that, you know what, this might in fact make us saints. So talk a little bit about uh, how your book, Villains of the Early Church, uh, actually speaks a message that is pertinent to us today. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's good for us to recover uh, the, the sense of, of the outsider, right? Uh, if you look at... Um, at, at the early church, these Christians were seen as alien beings because of, of what they valued, all right? Um, uh, there were so many things that we valued that we take, you know, as Christians, that, that the, the church valued in those times that we take for granted today. The idea of, um, of human dignity, that did not, did not exist. Uh, universal human brotherhood, of human equality, of, uh, of women's rights, of children's rights. All of these things are developments that came about because of Christian revelation. You know, that was, they provided the foundation. Well, the, 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 the Roman world had no sense of that. And so it had no sense of, of those goods that come out of that tradition that are, that would eventually come out of that tradition. Um, the, the, the historian Robert Louis Wilkin wrote a, a great book, uh, uh, the Christians as the Romans saw them, right? And and it really does help us to understand and even have a bit of sympathy for the pagan persecutors of the first, second, third centuries. You know that uh, that 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 these people saw Christianity as a real threat to their civilization, because what would happen if women, for example, had had vocational freedom? What would happen if a woman, instead of marrying a man, uh, uh, the, 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 the man her father chose for her, decided that she was going to commit her life to consecrated virginity? And this was happening uh, with, with greater frequency in the Christian world. All of these things appeared as threats to, Christ, to, to, to Roman civilization, uh, the world as they knew it. It was passing away, falling away. And... Um, and and uh, and and so they lashed out. So one of my one of my villains in the in the book is is Nero, who really did lay the foundation for all the Roman persecutions that would follow. And uh, and it's interesting because he did kind of frame the Christians for the crime of their you know that they were they were brought to trial for the first time. But he knew that he could not he could not sustain the charges that were first brought against them. So eventually they were convicted of something called 
hatred of humanity. They were called haters, right? You know, and uh, and we hear that charge today. We're going to look like outsiders in a world that's becoming increasingly post-Christian. We're going to look like outsiders and we're going to be persecuted. It's good for us to know how the church has handled this in the past and not only handled it, not only kind of endured it, but prevailed and triumphed because um, uh, it, we would not have the good things that we have today were it not for uh, the, the, the endurance of Christianity uh, through, those, through those centuries of persecution and then through the millennia that followed. You know, Mike, you're, you're talking with a very uh, quiet, calm voice about get ready, folks, the persecution's coming. Uh, I, I really admire that. I think that that is an important thing for us to hear, that we shouldn't just expect that we're going to be accepted and acceptable to the growing beliefs that are being promoted in law, policy, and in media and social media today. And let that be okay. Let it be okay that we're following in the footsteps of the master and we're following in the footsteps of many, many, and maybe most generations of Christians who have ever lived. Well, certainly the church flourishes most when it's loved least. You know, when, Wow, that when, statement, when that is very powerful. The church flourishes most when it's loved least. <laughs> yeah. I boy, mean, but, uh, you know, you, do you, you don't want to, it's like you wouldn't want to choose it, but boy, if you want to say, I want to flourish, Lord, what are you asking for, right? If you look at, at history, there is the pattern. You know, that's the pattern. As, as Rodney Stark pointed out, during those, those centuries of persecution, the church grew at a steady rate of 40% per decade and sustained that growth for almost 300 years. That's astonishing. That's amazing. It's true. It's verifiable. Rodney Stark is not a Christian, or he, he recently died, but he was not a Christian when he wrote those words. He, was, he identified himself as agnostic. He was just looking at the evidence, and that's what he saw. Wow, that's so striking. I'm talking with Mike Aquilina. Mike, we only have a couple of minutes left, I know, but I want to just touch on one of your other books, if that's okay. Folks, I hope you're enjoying this interview with Mike, and you'll want to come out and see him tomorrow night at... Uh, at Gonzaga University, um, where he's going to again be speaking at Jesper Center, the Wolf Auditorium on the early church and the invention of medicine as we know it. That's 7 to 8.30 in the evening on Thursday, November the 10th. Um, Mike, when you think about what will sustain us, what, what's going to help hand on the faith generation to generation? Well, we have to put the Mass, right? The holy sacrifice of the Mass is the source and the summit and the center of our life of faith. Yeah. And this reminded me of one of your early books. It's in its second edition, The Mass of the Early Christians. Mm -hmm. Again, it feels like this book is very timely, especially because of the way in which um, even the Mass itself has become a place of contention, even among very faith-filled and fervent Catholics, that the Mass has been, um, in its attempts to be relevant, a place where many Catholics have seemingly floated away from the practice of their faith and attempts today to recover a deeper sense of reverence, whether that's in the Novus Ordo or the traditional Latin mass, efforts to retain our identity in the mass while also being reverent at mass is um, a source of uh, recovering faith and deepening faith among the faithful. I'd love for you to just reference that in relationship to your book. The mass is the thing that unifies us, you know, and our, our Lord made that clear, you know, that, um, that it would be the unifier. It would be, it would be uh, the thing that we do. If we, if we look at, at the acts of the apostles and the very beginnings of the church, acts 242, we see that the community of believers were marked by certain, uh, qualities, certain characteristics, certain actions, the teaching of the apostles and the communion, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Where do we see those four things come together? In the mass, the teaching of the apostles, in the, the readings and the communion, okay, the, the fellowship of the people there and the fellowship with God, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. You know, the mass was what the church did through all those years. Uh, and if you see uh, the, the earliest Eucharistic prayer we have, which is older than most of the texts that we 
we can read in the New Testament. It's in, in a document called the Didache, and the liturgical portions of it were probably finished before the year 48 AD. So they're very early in Christian history, and, and they all talk about the prayers in the in the, the Didache, talk about how the Mass unifies the Christian people, unifies the church. Uh, you know, people tend to romanticize the early church. Uh, you know, whether they're trying to advocate one kind of liturgy or the other, they try to they 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 try to romanticize what was going on then. Uh, but in another one of my books, I I try to demonstrate that one of the things that Catholics do, in addition to the mass, is complain about the mass. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we complain about the liturgy, so we have an abundance of complaints from the early church about how the mass is celebrated, about liturgical abuses, about the singing, about the songs, and how awful they are. You know, this is something that Catholics do. We celebrate the mass, and we complain about the mass. You know, because you know the mass is always inadequate to its task. You know, it's supposed to it's supposed to be the action of the body of Christ glorifying God. And uh and and uh and and and, and we're limited. <laughs> you know, we, we just can't bring that about in a way that's going to uh going to knock everybody out. So we hear the complaints all the time, but the mass continues doing what it's doing, you know, and and just uh uh communicating that grace to the church and giving us what we need. Uh uh, it, it'll be good once we can we can um, recognize our hunger and go to mass with humble hearts and uh, and be grateful uh, that we're that we're being fed by the sacraments and um, and uh, and being empowered to go forward that way. Um, yeah, amen to that. I just it it strikes me that I mean we live in a time where. I don't have time to complain. I just, it, it, there's too much at stake right now to yeah. live the faith, hand the faith on, raise my kids in faith. Don't waste your energy. Don't waste your life on that. It's just, yeah. it makes me just want to flee Facebook, you know, uh, <laughs> yes. which it just yes. makes me realize how old I am, right? If I'm still on Facebook, Mike, I think we're, we're the Facebook generation. I'm sorry. I just put you right in there with me. So uh, well, this is, uh, again, I'm talking with Mike Aquilina today. Please go to fathersofthechurch.com. By the way, what a great website, fathersofthechurch.com. However you got that, that's awesome. That's nice time father- got it for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Long that time was- ago. Well, and don't let go of it. It's a great website, fathersofthechurch.com. You can learn about Mike. You can get his books. You can find out about um, where he's speaking and other ways to be in touch with him, as well as uh, access his archive of blogs. So, uh, Mike, I really appreciate you've been very generous with me today on your birthday, which I really (laughs) appreciate. So I do wish you a very happy birthday, safe travels out here, and uh, a fruitful event at the Faith and Reason Institute's event coming up on Thursday night. That's tomorrow night, 7 to 8.30 in the evening at the Wolf Auditorium in the Jepson Center on the grounds of Gonzaga University. Mike Aquilina, thank you so much for being with me today on the program. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. <laughs>